0: Thanks for listening to the GOSH podcast. GOSH stands for the Gynecologic Oncology Sharing Hub, an open space for real and evidence-based discussions on gynecologic cancers. We'll share the stories of gyne cancer patients and survivors, and hear from researchers and clinicians who are working behind the scenes to improve the lives of people with gynecologic cancers. Our podcast is produced and recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. It is produced by the Gynecologic Cancer Initiative, a province-wide initiative in British Columbia with the mission to accelerate transformative research and translational practice on the prevention, detection, treatment, and survivorship of gynecologic cancers. Hi, I'm Nicole Kay. And I'm Stephanie Lamb, And you're listening to the GOSH Podcast. The GOSH Podcast presents a three-part series to celebrate the Conquering Cancer campaign. Conquering Cancer is a global social impact communications initiative designed to celebrate the efforts made to eliminate cervical cancer around the world. While cancers are a leading cause of death worldwide, a global movement is building to put cervical cancer in the history books. The aim of the Conquering Cancer campaign is to propel change by supporting the World Health Organization's cervical cancer elimination targets through a three-pronged approach of vaccination, screening, and treatment. In this three-part series, we interview three important women behind this campaign. Dr. Marianne Saville, Executive Director of the Australian Centre for the Prevention of Cervical Cancer, Sue Collins, filmmaker behind Conquering Cancer, and Kirsty Brown, a cervical cancer survivor and patient advocate. Through the Conquering Cancer campaign, these three women are seeking to raise awareness about the prevention and elimination of cervical cancer and how, by implementing vaccination, screening, and treatment, it is entirely possible and will save the lives of an estimated 62 million people around the world. So, welcome back to the GOSH Podcast. Today, we have a very exciting guest um, who have joined us today. We have Dr. Marion Saville, who is a New Zealand medical graduate who trained in um, anatomical pathology at Northwestern University in Chicago. She went on to complete a fellowship in cytopathology at East Carolina University and a research fellowship at Georgetown University, focusing on HPV. She has held the position of Executive Director of the Australian Center for the Prevention of Cervical cancer since the year 2000. Marian is interested in how culturally safe screening can meet the needs of disadvantaged groups who have poorer cancer outcomes in Australia and New Zealand. She has also focused on research and implementation projects demonstrating that it is possible to deliver high-quality, acceptable cervical screening in a range of resource-poor settings. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, and to start us off, um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your work as the executive? director of the Australian Centre for the Prevention of Cervical Cancer.
1: Sure, and thanks for having me. So um, I am a cytopathologist by background, which means I specialised in the laboratory interpretation of conventional pap smears. Um, And uh, that's what our organization did for many, many years. We did about 300,000 pap smears a year. We had 50 laboratory scientists. We had a team of pathologists. and we read pap smears, which we uh, we did in Australia every two years. And so um, about five or 10 years into the role, it became apparent to me that the HPV vaccine was going to have a huge impact on the way we did things. Um, we already knew that this is a cancer that almost always is caused by the human papillomavirus. Um, and so we started to think about how we could improve the function of the screening program. So here in Australia, we've changed our program from a PAP program to a program where the primary screening test is an HPV test, still collected the way the PAP was collected for the moment, um, but only necessary every five years. And so that five yearly HPV testing is more effective at preventing cancer than two yearly um, PAPs and certainly than three yearly PAPs. Um, So so we've been involved in ACPCC and laboratory aspects and also in the um, population health aspects of screening. So we give advice to government and we've had a history of running registries and that's that's how we... um, follow up people who've been screened, invite them to rescreen, and how we also um, follow up those whose screening test is positive, but we can't see evidence that they've had um, a follow up uh, colposcopy and biopsy. And that's aimed at um, recognizing that screening is a pathway, it's not an event. And unless we follow up those who have a positive screening test with appropriate assessment and treatment, then we're not gonna have the outcome of preventing the cancers. Um, So we've had uh, a lot of involvement in running those registers um, and we do associated research as well. And the latest thing that we're doing is working with the Australian government um, because the Australian government's decided that as of July 1st, um, anyone eligible for screening uh, can choose to have the sample collected like the old pap smear um, or can collect their own sample um, using um, a swab to collect a sample from the vagina. And we know from the evidence that that's just as effective as a sample collected by the clinician. So we're in a very exciting time where we can hand control of the screening process um, to the person who needs to be screened. And and we get a lot of reports that um, in our um, pilots that people like that because they have autonomy and control over their body. And um, it overcomes a lot of um, embarrassment, fear, shame um, that some people feel about. Obviously, having that um, intimate um, medical exam with a speculum.
0: So can I ask a little bit about that? Like, yeah, so how yeah. would that work? Would you go into the doctor and get the swab and you'd take it home? Or is it something that if you registered for it, is it sent to your home? Or, or what would that process look like?
1: It's an excellent question. And we're seeing a lot of different approaches around the world. Um, here in Australia, we think that one of the strengths of our screening program is it's very strongly embedded in primary care. And so um, so uh, we, in our pilots, what's happened in Australia is that we have, um, uh, we've provided primary care with those swabs. And typically, uh, the person's asked to um, collect the swab while still in the clinic. So they're usually provided privacy, whether that's behind a exam curtain or in the bathrooms and they collect the sample and in one of our pilots um, targeting um, people who would said no to a a, a usual collection of a sample we got a sample on 85 percent of patients
0: oh wow
1: through the pandemic we in our laboratory have offered a um, through the mail Uh, in in conjunction with a telehealth consultation with a primary care physician. So we've tried to keep that embedded in primary care. Um, We haven't seen huge uptake of that and we get a kit back about two thirds of the time. And then internationally, in one of our earlier research projects, we sent the kits out through the mail um, using our registry infrastructure that I talked about earlier, and we have um, still lower participation. So I think that uh, from my point of view, it's best if it's done in the setting of a, of, of a clinic, we're more likely to get the sample. But we take the view that no door is the wrong door to get a sample from an unscreened or underscreened person who needs it. And so I think, I think probably my view would be the ideal thing is, is that, that healthcare practitioner setting, but we're going to need other ways to reach people that aren't regularly in primary care, marginalized people, community outreach, whether it's through the mail um, or whatever. So I think we need to be flexible about how we do that. I think we need to work with communities and, and the primary health care people who know their communities about what works for them.
0: Wow, this is amazing. And I think that, um Um, Some of our colleagues here in BC also do a lot of um, that work around self-collection, particularly Dr. Gina Ogilvie, um, who um, has run similar pilots, um, um, primarily primarily looking at um, the uptake of self-collection in our rural and remote communities. Um, So in BC and in in Canada, we have a lot of different communities who just aren't um, just don't have the same healthcare infrastructure as those in the major cities. Is that something that um, is also an experience that um, you folks in Australia experience? Like, are there a lot of disparities between rural and remote communities or are people um, quite accessible to um, larger metropolitan environments where there maybe are more healthcare
1: providers? Sure. Um, I'm a good... Friend and colleague of Gina's, and aware of the work in in Canada, um, yeah. Well, first of all, our biggest disparity is with our First Nations people. So, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are more than twice as likely to get cervix cancer, and almost four times as likely to die of it. Um, I think there are complex reasons for that, and certainly some of it overlaps with the gap in um, services in remote settings. Um, but it's not the entire story for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There are all sorts of reasons why our previous screening programs have not met the needs of those communities. And you know it's really important that we work with communities, um, that we have community led initiatives about how to, how to in- improve the services, to improve um, access to screening, to make the screening culturally acceptable And we specifically um, piloted self-collection in an Aboriginal health service in a regional uh, community, um, with very, very strong uptake and again very good feedback in the qualitative research. So it certainly meets the needs of um, many uh, Aboriginal people not screening here in Victoria, which is our state. Um, We have to look, I think, globally at remote communities. around the opportunities afforded, not only by self-collection, but new technology that allows the test to be run um, on site. So point of care testing, um, getting a result within an hour or so. Uh, And what that facilitates is if you take that technology into a community, uh, it's very resilient, it works in the field. um, And you also have someone who can take the next steps in terms of assessment and treatment then that can be done on the same day because these are communities potentially where there's um, visiting services and so if you do the testing you bring all the swabs back to a metropolitan lab by the time you're next there it might be quite difficult to find that person who's got a positive result. So we um, are involved in a project in um, in the Kimberley in uh, remote parts of Western Australia but we're also working with colleagues in Papua New Guinea and the Western Highlands and, and what what those communities have in common is their distance from health services and their poorer access to services. So again, it's about thinking flexibly about what will work for the, the person that you're trying to screen um, and making sure that you've got a way of joining up the screening from the, to the assessment and treatment because otherwise it's just activity, it's not cancer outcomes, which is what we're all here to deliver, elimination of cancer. I feel like we could poke and ask so many more questions just on that
0: whole topic. Um, but w- we were here to chat with you about is um, this other hat that you wear, which is the executive producer of a documentary called conquering cancer. So we'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that and why that's so important to you.
1: Yeah, sure. So the conquering cancer initiative came to my attention when um when the director was, um, Mike was looking around for how we were gonna get this up. And and what I recognized straight away in in the context of the WHO uh, call for elimination, and then we we didn't have the strategy then, but we have the announced strategy now, was that advocacy requires storytelling. Um, And if we're going to get every woman in the world to have two tests, between the age of, you know, at 35 and 45, we're going to need billions of tests, we're going to need adequate follow-up, and for that we're going to need political will. And you can't get that always just from the cost-effectiveness, from the compelling scientific evidence. It needs to be complemented with advocacy and storytelling. And so I saw this as an enormous opportunity, and um, our involvement really has been with um putting putting the documentary team in touch with with um with people that that might support it and we have got strong links to people in the technology sector um across a range of um, manufacturers so people who whose products support the elimination of cancer and are going to be needed most particularly those who um, manufacture these hpv tests we don't have um and we're very careful not to have an alliance with any particular manufacturer. So um, what we were able to do was just give, give the um, the team a bit of guidance. Um, and, and I think that was probably my main role as an executive producer, apart from my willingness to share, you know, um, to the extent that I did um, in the documentary um, and to talk about In particular, um, uh, the Rose Project, which is now a program and um, a not-for-profit foundation. So um, it's been some further developments um, in Malaysia, which is great. It's it's all part of... uh, At the Australian Centre, we're a not-for-profit agency and and, our our charitable purpose, as as they talk about, is is the, the control... Uh, amongst the main one is a control of cervical cancer uh, and, and the prevention through screening and, and vaccination where we can help with that.
0: Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the... Um- cervical cancer elimination and what that looks like from Australia's perspective. And maybe if you could touch on a little bit about um, that project that you mentioned in Malaysia, I think that would be really interesting to hear about as well in the context of um, cervical cancer elimination.
1: Sure. So as as you probably know, the WHO, um, I think in 2018, called for elimination of cervical cancer is a public health problem and elimination is not the same as eradication. Uh, we will still have small numbers of cases and the agreed target is um, an age standardized rate of four per 100,000 women. So we expect through the modeling work of Professor Karen Canfell and her team that Australia will get there no later than 2035. We're currently around six per 100,000 and we're on track to be the first country in the world to achieve that, so that's really exciting. And I think that um, reflects the commitment of the Austra- of Australian governments um, uh, over time different you know different governments uh, to our screening program historically, and and then when the vaccine came along, we we're the first country in the world to have nationally funded HPV vaccination. Um, so. Um, Having that high coverage of vaccination, although we could do better with some of the disparity, um, and the very successful screening program, which has been HPV-based now since 2017, really puts us strongly on the pathway um, to reduce that incidence uh, by then. Um, um, We've been a very um, Australian-focused organization for many decades, but we could see particularly with the WHO initiative and, and, and talking to colleagues in other countries, um, that you know we've been in a very privileged position with that, that government support to the programs in Australia. And we feel that we have an obligation to work with colleagues um, who are in less well-resourced settings, particularly in our region. So we um, at ACPCC do the majority of our work. Um, in the Asia-Pacific region or even the Indo-Pacific region with some projects in India. Um, but uh, the Malaysian project was the first one, and that came about when I met Yin Ling. I think this is in the documentary, um, at a science uh, scientific meeting in Singapore, and we just started talking about what was needed. And I think um, Yin Ling had... You know, she grew up in Kuala Lumpur, but she did her training to be a gynaec oncologist in the UK. So I think she was a little bit confronted when she came home and saw so much um, late stage disease um, in a country that's supposed to have had a paps smear program since the 1950s, but hasn't been meeting um, or reaching enough people. Um, and there are some systems complexities too. So Um, We worked together um, with teams on the ground, and I I did say to her that I I, I couldn't really make strong recommendations without visiting the setting where screening would take place. So we went into those clinic, we met the nurses, we talked about what would happen, and what we brought together was um, uh, what we knew about self sampling. So self sampling was part of the package, and the other part of the package was that registry background I talked about. we, we put it into the cloud and um, made it available on mobile devices for use in these settings. We haven't done that in Australia. So this was new technology <laughs> in a lower resource setting. And so the nurses were able to register patients, um, collect the sample, the result then goes onto CanScreen. And then actually the way things work is that um, a patient who's going through this process gets their result on their mobile phone by text message. And remember this was before everyone started doing it with COVID. So this was quite a radical thing to be doing. And what that showed us was that um, of those who had a positive test, two thirds um, called the Rose team the same day to organize their um, appointment. And then supported by our technology infrastructure, the Rose team then followed up those who didn't call. And and we facilitate that with work lists and things through the the registry infrastructure that we've given them. And through the dedication of that team using the tool, they have got the follow-up rates to over 90%. And that is one of the targets in the WHO strategy is screen 70% of age-eligible women and ensure that 90% of screen-positive people get followed up and get appropriately treated. So that's one of the few... um, screening programs um, that I'm aware of in in these sorts of low and middle income settings where the follow-up rates are so high, it's because we embedded the digital technology together with the self-collection. And I think what had been happening is that they were facing problems with firewalls, with lab results coming in. So they were working with workbooks. So then if they had a positive PAP, they then had to look back to get the contact numbers there was significant delay in reporting. So we cut through a lot of those barriers. But I think the main thing for me was I learned so so much from the team on the ground in Malaysia. So we, we bring some technology, but they tell us what will work. And, and so we, we know what to do. We need to screen people with HPV. We need to join them to treatment. They're the experts on how to do it in their setting. And I think that's why that partnership has been so successful.
0: Wow, I love that. I think it speaks to kind of what you were mentioning of Um, a bit earlier about how you know there's no one size fits all um, approach to this work, Um, and I love how it was such like a community based um, and community focused um, initiative to identify what was going wrong and to then implement the um, the technology is um, just amazing to hear and it sounds like um, they've been really, they've been able to meet some of those targets um, in the coming years.
1: Yeah. And I think I think what what makes it work so well, the team on the ground are fantastic.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: Yen and I have a very strong friendship now. Mm. And I think the team see our collaboration mm-hmm. and it supports a culture of collaboration problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, so
0: yeah yeah that's amazing um so just to wrap things up um you know this podcast we do reach out to a lot of um patients and survivors um but we also reach out to um our researcher and clinical colleagues as well um if you had one message to share with the public about cervical cancer what would that message be
1: oh look i think wherever you live um if, if you're a woman or a person with a cervix, um, you should be seeking screening, um, you should be taking advantage of what's available and if it's not available, you should be asking for it and you should be asking for and seeking vaccination for your children.
0: Yeah. That's a really important message that I think cuts through a lot of Kirsty's message as well and a lot of our other um, folks who work in the cervical cancer space. Um, So those are some really important key steps for people to take um, as they move along in their um, personal health journeys. so thank you so much, Marion, for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to get to hear about Australia's work in this space and to hear also about the advocacy and the global health work um, that you're doing. And um, we're really looking forward to um, seeing the documentary. Um, and we hope that um, the message that you share today will really resonate with our listeners. So thank you so much for joining um, and for being part of this podcast.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Thanks for joining us on the GOSH podcast. To learn more about the Gynecologic Cancer Initiative and our podcast, make sure to check out our website at gynecancerinitiative.ca.